This morning we are beginning to talk about chapter 4, the chapter of restoration. Now, I'm going I'm to just front load this this morning by telling you this is a two-part message. We're not going to get all the way through it this morning because God has a lot to say about his work of restoration that he launched in Jesus. Uh, if you're with us for the first time or maybe missed a Sunday or two, uh, we're talking about something called the four-chapter gospel. Uh, it's not a different gospel. It's simply a way of breaking down the story of God into four unique movements or chapters. Uh, we started with creation. Then we talked about the fall. Last week, we talked about redemption, Christ's work at the cross, and what it means for us today. And this morning, we're going to start having a conversation about chapter four, redemption, the trajectory, the arc of where the story is going and where it will, will culminate. Now, one of the things that, that you need to know for this morning's conversation is that uh, the Jewish culture, the Hebrew culture, the culture of the Old Testament was a storytelling telling, uh, culture. They were an oral tradition, and so they would tell stories about God. They would remember their history together, celebrating things God had done. And sometimes God would emphasize a particular part of past stories in order to highlight something he was doing in the present. Now, one of the most compelling stories for the Hebrew people was the story of the Exodus, the rescue of God's people out of slavery and leading them into the land of promise. Uh, this became a primary point of celebration every year for the Jewish people uh, around the Passover, where they would remember, they would celebrate, and they would look forward to a period in time where they anticipated God beginning or launching a new exodus uh, to restore the kingdom to Israel. So let me tell you just quickly the Exodus story, a couple of highlights. So the Exodus story begins with an encounter with God. Uh, the people of Israel have been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, and God breaks in in a unique and a powerful way through these 10 successive plagues that he visits upon Egypt. And then Pharaoh uh, comes to the end of himself, and he decides to let the people go. But in order to get out of Egypt and begin to journey toward the promised land, they have to pass through a body of water called the Red Sea, another miracle. God leads them out into the wilderness, and they meet with God at Mount Sinai. Moses goes up uh, onto the top of Mount Sinai to receive uh, the, the law from God. And while he is there, uh, the story says he fasts for 40 days and for 40 nights. Um, the people of God make some mistakes. They find themselves in the wilderness for longer than they expected. And they find themselves tested three times while they were in the wilderness. The first is at Exodus 15 at a place called Mara, which means bitter, uh, where they had no water and didn't trust God to provide. God had to intervene miraculously. Uh, Exodus 16 tells the story of God providing manna from heaven because once again, they've said, if you brought us out here to die, God tells them, don't store any of it. Trust me daily for your provision. They store it anyway, and it rots. Exodus 17, once again, the people of Israel are, are in the um, desert of Zin, Z-I-N, and there is no water anywhere, and they look at God, and they look at Moses and said, seriously, have you really brought us out here to die? And God provides water from a rock. Now, eventually, they, they cross over the Jordan River, now under the leadership of a man named Joshua, and begin to take possession of the promised land. But they don't get it immediately. There are others who have taken possession of that land who live there that the Israelites have to displace. So the, the taking of the promised land is progressive, and over time, their territory expands. So that's the story of the Exodus. Now, Luke, in his gospel, as he begins to open the story about Jesus, 
reaches back to the Exodus story and makes a parallel as he tells the story of Jesus beginning his ministry. Let me show you what I mean. Uh, Jesus' ministry begins with an encounter with God. Begins an encounter with God in his baptism where he comes up out of the water and the Holy Spirit comes and descends with him uh, on him like a dove. Jesus comes up out of the Jordan, through the Jordan, crosses over as Israel crossed the Red Sea. And then he too is led by God into the wilderness where he fasts for 40 days and for 40 nights. During that time, he is tested three times, not by God, but by Satan. The first time is when Satan comes to him and says, you look hungry. If you're really the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Jesus responds. The word says, don't eat. You know, man doesn't live by bread alone. The second time is when Satan shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And says, if you worship me, if you bow down, I will give all of these kingdoms to you. Which is interesting, because as we'll see, <clears throat> Jesus is making his own kingdom statement. The third test is when Satan takes him up to the pinnacle, the highest point in the temple. And he says, cast yourself down. If you're really the son of God, he will send his angels to catch you before you hit the ground. And Jesus responded, you know, the Bible says, gospel says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. When that testing is over, Jesus crosses back over the Jordan and into the promised land. That's the land of Israel. And he makes a statement as he crosses into the promised land. He says that the kingdom of God has come. And he is beginning to expand it or, as Israel did, take possession of it. So the gospel writers lean heavily, all of them, into the Exodus imagery to show that God is launching a second rescue mission with Jesus. As Moses led Israel out of Egypt. Now Jesus is initiating something new. Exodus was meant to lead to the kingdom of Israel, and yet it didn't. Uh, that's the story of the rest of the Old Testament. The highs, the lows, the successes, the failures, they're choosing a different kind of king. And at the end of the Old Testament, it's become abundantly clear that Israel was not up to the task. And so the Gospels open with the story of Jesus doing what Israel couldn't, launching this new Exodus, this new rescue operation. When, when you read the word <clears throat> salvation in the Bible, in its simplest form, it means rescue. Jesus was launching a new rescue operation. And, and Luke, having finished the, the, the 40 days and the testing, the Exodus imagery, picks up the story in Lexodus, uh, uh, excuse me, Luke 4, verse 14. Uh, read this with me. It says, Jesus returned to Galilee filled with the Holy Spirit's power. Reports about him spread quickly throughout the whole region. He taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. And when he came to the village in Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All the eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them. And he said, The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. So Jesus says, he reaches back into the, the, the prophetic literature of, of the Jewish people, reads a statement from Isaiah that was prophesying something God was going to do, and he said, today, this scripture has been fulfilled. This prophecy is coming true. Well, what had he just read? What statement was he making? The first thing he said as he read is, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me. Now, when we speak of Jesus, we speak of Jesus Christ. And you may think 
Christ is his last name, but it's not. Christ is the Greek translation of the Jewish word Messiah, and that word Messiah means anointed one. This is the one that the people of Israel were waiting that was going to be anointed by the Spirit of God to lead them to freedom. He stands up and he says, that's me, the person you've been waiting for. It's me, and God has anointed me, his anointed one, to bring good news. And remember, as we've talked about that statement in Scripture, good news, it always has to do with the arrival of a king and his coming kingdom. It's the, the word evangelion. It's, it's Jesus saying that the rule of God, the reign of God, the kingdom of God has now come. And in God's new inbreaking kingdom, there are some things that are going to be true. One of them is that captives are going to be released. Another is that blind will see. The oppressed will be set free. Jesus is saying this is what it is going to look like in God's kingdom. The time of the Lord's favor, he says, has come. It it is today, and it begins with me. The long-awaited hope of Israel and the world is coming to fulfillment in this moment in the person of Jesus. That's the statement he's making. This is the inbreaking or the arrival of the long-awaited kingdom of God, which sounds great, and it gets even better. See, his audience would have been steeped in the Hebrew scriptures, and so this passage in Isaiah would have been quite familiar to them, so they would have known what followed on in the following verses. Isaiah goes on to say that when the anointed one came, part of his role, Isaiah 61, the second half of verse 2, would be to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them or give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of, the, of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. And then listen to these verbs. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that in Jesus, God was not only launching a rescue operation that would deal with our sin, but a restoration, a rebuilding mission. That's the language of Isaiah. Renewed cities, rebuilt ruins, and restored places that had been devastated for generations. Jesus was coming not only to deal with our sin and our separation from God, but God was in Christ going to address every aspect of of human need. Spiritual, physical, emotional, social, governmental. Jesus was dealing with the fullness of the human condition, and he said, it's beginning right now. God is, in this moment, launching his rescue, launching his restoration movement. He wasn't pointing to a a future in the, uh, excuse me, a point somewhere off in the indeterminate future. Like, someday, God's going to come back and make everything okay. He says, God is is bringing his kingdom to bear on earth right now. And part of that kingdom is restoring everything that has been broken by sin and the fall. We talked about redemption last week. That is a pivotal, the pivotal, pivotal piece of the story of God, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that we might be forgiven, made righteous in him, and stand right before the Father. But that was not all of it. Jesus was saying that he would bring about shalom. He would bring about human flourishing to his creation by restoring it. 
not destroying it and beginning again, but restoring the damage that had been done until shalom, until flourishing was present among humanity. Now, we saw what Luke said. I want you to take over to the, I want to take you over to the Gospel of Mark. I'm speaking fast. I'm super excited. I'm going to try to slow down, but I love what, what this story teaches us about God. Um, so Mark's gospel is the shortest of the four gospels, and it's like power packed. He, like, he gets to the point and says, ready, go. Uh, you read the first two chapters of Mark, and he says the word immediately like 17,000 times. So he's telling the same story. He's just telling the same story through his own lens. So uh, Mark 1, verse 12. The Spirit compelled Jesus to go into the wilderness. That's what we were just talking about. Where he was tempted by Satan for 40 days. He was out among the wild animals, and angels took care of him. Later on, after John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee, where he preached God's good news. The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. So the promised time has now come to pass. What what promised time is he talking about? Well, He's talking about what we just read about the kingdom coming in Isaiah 61. And when Mark uses this language to say the kingdom of God is near, that doesn't mean exactly the same thing it means in English. It doesn't mean like it's over there and we'll get to it eventually. When he says the kingdom of God is near, another translation says at hand, it means here. The kingdom of God has come. It isn't coming at some other time. It is here right now. Not fully, we'll talk about that next week, but it is here. And so he says, because the kingdom of God is here, repent and believe the good news. So what was the good news? It's the Evangelion. It's the the announcement of the arrival of a new kingdom, the reign of a king. And so sandwiching the coming of the kingdom and the good news and putting the word repent right in the middle, he's making a statement about what repentance is meant to to look like. So here's here's what Jesus is saying when he says repent. Number one, stop trying to build your own kingdom. There is a new kingdom here. So stop trying to build your own. Stop trying to tell God what he should and shouldn't do. Your primary allegiance should be to his work and to him as your savior. Now, in Jesus' audience, some of them were were probably building their their personal kingdoms like Yep, this is what I want, and I want it, and God, so give it to me. But others were working to build a literal kingdom. There was a nationalistic strain going through the nation of Israel where people were trying to overthrow the Roman Empire. When you read about people and Jesus' disciples like Simon the Zealot, that's what a zealot did. A zealot was committed to the violent overthrow of Rome. So Jesus is saying here, not only do you need to lay down your own kingdoms, but you need to lay down your idea of a nationalistic kingdom and come into alignment with what I am doing. Because where my kingdom is brought to bear, I will show you shortly, people thrive and are whole. And if people are being restored, then nations can be restored. But if you start by trying to restore a nation, thinking that is the answer to restoring people, you've got it twisted. You with me? You understand what I'm saying? So, so lay down your idea of some nationalized religion, Jesus is saying. Focus on your Savior. Come into my kingdom. Let me teach you what kingdom living looks like. And from restored people, restoration will flow. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The statement he's making, I've got good news for you. I'm your king. I've come to rescue you and redeem you so that you can live in my kingdom. And then the rest of the Gospel of Mark shows 
how Jesus goes about doing that, how he goes about bringing shalom, how he causes people to flourish. So we got to ask the question from Scripture, how does Jesus bring about both redemption and restoration? So we know from our conversation last week that redemption, the, the buying us back from the slavery of sin, well, that, that came through the cross, through his death. But Jesus doesn't make an announcement, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, and say, come join my kingdom, and go immediately to the cross, does he? Is it not a trick question? He doesn't. He doesn't. He's got three and a half years where he's walking around doing stuff. What is he doing? Well, he's calling disciples, and he's casting out demons, and he's healing the sick, and he's, he's forgiving sins. He's going to deal with the ultimate need for us to have redemption through a Savior, but Jesus is in the process of saving people holistically, not just spiritually. He is interested in restoring the entirety of a person. That's the story of Isaiah 61. That's the promise that God sees how people suffer spiritually, physically, socially, emotionally, and he offers himself as the answer to every area of human need. If your understanding of the gospel is Jesus died for your sins so that you can live with him forever in eternity, you've got part of it. And it's a great part. But it's not the totality of the story. Jesus wants to save people holistically. He wants to, in in the, the words of this chapter, restore all of them. So how does he go about doing that? Watch how he does this. Mark 1, uh, verse 16 through 18. One day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living, which they should if they're throwing nets. Jesus called out to them, come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. Jesus' work of restoration was not going to be done by Jesus alone. Redemption, yes, was something only Jesus could offer. Only he could go to the cross for our sins. But restoration was going to be a partnership. So he says to his disciples, follow me and I will show you how to fish for people. When I, when I was a kid and I read that, I just I, maybe it was because I had the, the idea of the net just kind of capturing and gathering, capturing and gathering and capturing and gathering and just getting as many as you can. But Jesus... Jesus didn't teach his disciples how to gather a crowd. I have never found a study, I've never found a sermon where Jesus calls his disciples together and goes, let me tell you how to get a lot of people in a room. But what he does do is he shows his disciples how to engage in the mission and ministry of restoration. I will show you how to fish for men, fish for women. I will show you how you are supposed to do it. And they spend three and a half years watching Jesus as he does it. The citizens of God's kingdom are meant to join him in his restorative work. When he calls the disciples to follow him, it's, it's not a call like, like follow the leader on the playground. You remember that? Where everywhere they went, you had to went. If they climbed this, you climbed. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying go everywhere I go. For a disciple to follow their leader meant to become like their leader. Jesus is saying follow, watch, learn from, become like me. And one of the things that happens is that you will be able to gather people 
fish for people, heal people, save people, as I do. And in order for that to happen, Jesus had to instill his his disciples with a couple of things. He instills them with purpose, and then he empowers them to fulfill that purpose. This is Luke chapter 9. One day, anytime the the Bible starts with one day, something really cool is about to happen. One day, Jesus called together his 12 disciples and gave them power and authority to cast out demons and to heal all diseases. He sent them out to tell everyone about the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So they began their circuit of villages, preaching the good news and healing the sick. He didn't tell them, I want you to stand on a street corner with a megaphone and a big sign. And I want you to yell at people to make sure that they know that God's really serious about them repenting. He, he didn't. Now, he didn't tell them not to teach. He said, absolutely, I want you to teach. But I want you to meet people where they are and minister to that need. You have a twofold responsibility. Point people to the Father and meet them where they are and give them what they need. Heal the sick and preach the good news. And so they go and they come back and went, hey, that was kind of cool. In the next chapter, Luke chapter 10, he does the same thing. He repeats it with 72 disciples. And they come back going, holy cow, Jesus, this actually worked. We talked about you, we taught about you, and we healed people. And we even cast out demons. Why? Because God wants to do his work of restoration in partnership with his people. So Jesus gives his followers power, which is the ability... And he gives his disciples authority, which is the right to extend his kingdom. We got three right here, guys. If you need three, we got you. How you doing, Joshua? Good to see you guys. Son of a gun, I got to sit in the front. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. It's not the Sunday where I spit a lot, though, so you're all right. Although we're not done, so no promises. So he gives, as, as part of giving the, like, it's not enough for Jesus to say, hey, I want you to go do some works of restoration unless he does something for us. And so what he does for his disciples is he gives them power. He gives them the ability, and he gives them the authority, the right to do the things that he is sending them to do. Just as Adam and Eve in the garden held both the authority and the power to care for, to steward God's creation. Jesus is reinstituting, not the assignment, because the assignment never went away, but the ability to live as his restorative stewarding agents in the world today. The thing that he designed us to do and called us to do in the Garden of Eden, we are now empowered to do. Do you see that connection? Okay. If you don't, go, nope, and I'll show you. It's okay. God is restoring his creation through restored people as we look to him. So Jesus is our example. When we want to know how to treat people, when we want to know how to respond to people, when we want to know how to care for people, We look to Jesus. He's our example. But we are his agents of restoration. Like the God of the universe had a plan, and he looked at you and said, I'm going to do it with you. You're how I want to move this story forward. Let that sink into your thinker for a second. This is the same God who has already demonstrated he doesn't need to. Genesis 1, he spoke, and everything just happened. But he says, I'm going to launch this restorative movement, this kingdom of God on earth, And I'm going to do it through people who follow me, who love like I do, who care like I do, who serve like I do, who align themselves with me as their Savior because they have chosen to join me on my work, enter into my kingdom, and I'm going to restore my creation through them. That's a big freaking deal. So what what does the restoration look like? 
What does it look like? When you read the Gospels, you see that Jesus' impact on people was always twofold. There were two things he did every time he came around people. One, he taught them. He always pointed them to the Father. He always coached them. He always taught them. But secondly, he always touched them. There was, there was a felt need, a real need that Jesus intervened in. He was deeply concerned with their broken spiritual condition, 100%. That's why he was going to the cross. So he would teach them about the Father and point them to life in his kingdom. But he was also deeply concerned with the brokenness of the human condition. And many times it was the meeting of the physical need that opened the door for him to talk about the spiritual need. Watch, watch the progression. Jesus would meet people where they were. He would care for them in their area of need. And then once that need was met, he would begin to teach them about the Father. So I want to give you a couple examples about how Jesus went about restoring, how he went about fulfilling the promise of Isaiah. How are you doing? You doing okay? Can, can I just tell you that if I ever ask that question and you're not doing okay or you're confused, you have my absolute permission to go, I don't see it. Like, help me see it. Like, don't be adversarial. If you're adversarial, we got big guys in the back um, who will lovingly help you come to Jesus. But don't, <laughs> don't feel like you got to go, I understand it. This is great. If I mean, I'm happy to sit and my goal is not to get through a certain number of notes in a certain number of minutes. My goal is to help us grow closer to Jesus. And so if there are times where you're like, I'm not seeing it, um, come up after church. If somebody came up a couple weeks, actually like three different people came up a couple weeks ago and like, can we talk about it? Yeah, here's my number. Give me a call. Let's, let's figure this out. I, I want to help you understand. So, but let's, let's look at what restoration looks like, right? If Jesus has three and a half years to paint a picture, what kind of a picture is he painting? Still in Mark 1. Jesus and his companions went to the town of Capernaum. When the Sabbath day came, he went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike teachers of the religious law. They were quoting commentaries. They were quoting rabbis. Jesus is just saying, this is it. Uh, and people liked it. Suddenly, a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, Why are you interfering with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus reprimanded him. Be quiet. Come out of the man, he ordered. At that, the evil spirit screamed, threw the man into a convulsion, and then came out of him. They're having church. They're having church. In John 3, 8, Jesus was trying to let people know why he showed up. And one of the things he said was, he said, listen, the Son of God, Jesus, came for this purpose, to destroy the devil's work. In John 10.10, 10, Jesus explained the devil's work. He said, um, the enemy, the devil and spirits aligned with him, comes to steal and kill and destroy. That's what he's after. He hates everything Jesus loves. We see that at the beginning of creation. So, Jesus says, one of the things I'm going to do is I'm going to undo whatever he's trying to do. See, sometimes it's people who are the places long devastated. Sometimes it's people who have been living as if they are in ruins that need to be rebuilt. And sometimes that devastation is the result of demonic activity. Now, this man is not harassed by an unclean spirit. He's not oppressed. He's not being bothered. He's possessed. Now, uh, in the Western world, demonic possession does not happen very often for a very simple reason. Uh, we are sentient beings with agency. 
and we do not like to surrender control of ourselves to anyone. And so for you to be, by definition, possessed by an unclean spirit, you would have to offer yourself to that spirit much the same way you surrender yourself to the lordship of Jesus. So you don't, like, catch a demon. Now, we, we, we do, like, if your theology comes from, like, the exorcist, you might want to sit down and talk to me. Um, not super accurate. But demonic oppression, demonic harassment, very much a thing of living in a fallen world. And so what Jesus is demonstrating here is that's not allowed in my kingdom. And so when this demon is oppressing, possessing this person, and Jesus is moving forward the kingdom of God, it's like, in my kingdom, that's not okay. Get out. And he's got to get out. He removes the ability of that spirit to keep this man in bondage and restores a person to his right mind, his right control, by setting him free from the influence or control of this unclean spirit. He's making a statement on two, on, on two fronts. One, he's saying demonic oppression is not part of my kingdom and I will not allow for it in my kingdom. Secondly, he is reminding people that the highest authority in any kingdom is that of the king. And so every other authority is subservient to the authority of the king. Jesus is demonstrating his, his primacy, his, his authority. Now, when he destroys the work of hell, it's a sign that the kingdom of God has arrived within us. The rule and reign of God, right, because that's what the kingdom of God is, uh, is being exerted when, when this other kingdom is being decimated. Ephesians 6, Paul teaches us that this particular area continues to be a primary point of battle for us as we partner with Jesus in restorative work. Here's how Paul says it. He says, listen, guys, because sometimes we need a reminder. He says, listen, guys. Okay, I say listen, guys. We're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against the evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against the mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in heavenly places. Sometimes the evil and the injustice that we see is a result of fallen, broken people, right? Hurt people hurt people. Other times it's the result of spiritual activity which is at odds with the will of God and pushing against the kingdom of God. Paul tells us when we come up against injustice, when we come up against oppression, when we come up against evil, we are to love people and fight against the forces that influence them or enslave them. I can't find a spot in Scripture where God says, Jesus says, Paul says, Peter says, that group of people is okay to hate. Like if they tick you off, go knock them out. Paul says our authority is spiritual. And so when we address the powers and the principalities that are working against the plans and the purposes of God and simultaneously work to love the people being influenced by them, the kingdom of God moves forward. It is not an easy thing, especially not in our current culture where if you don't vote the way I vote, you're the devil. You hear what I'm saying? Where's my soapbox? It's around here somewhere. I'll say we. We cannot claim to be followers of Christ who are trying to live under his lordship and hate people who aren't like us. I don't care if it's skin color, socioeconomic, nation of origin, or politics. That is the kind of thing that Jesus is trying to deconstruct, destroy, as he advances his kingdom. So this, this is an example of spiritual restoration. Let me give you another example of of restoration. 
so I don't keep talking about politics. Um, Mark 129. After Jesus left the synagogue with James and John, they went to Simon and Andrew's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was sick in bed with a high fever. They told Jesus about her right away. So he went to her bedside, took her by the hand, and helped her to sit up. Then the fever left her, and she prepared a meal for them. That evening after sunset, many sick and demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus. The whole town gathered at the door to watch. So Jesus healed many people who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons. Sickness was never part of the plan. You don't find in Genesis 3.15, and on the eighth day, God created cancer. On the ninth day, he created hepatitis. This, this is, these, these illnesses, these sicknesses are a result of God's good creation being, being infected by sin. So in the kingdom of God, one of the things that God does to restore, where God is ruling and reigning, he, he, he does a work of healing. He banishes sickness. Some theologians and historians have said, for the three and a half years of Jesus' ministry, sickness was effectively banished from the region of Palestine. Because word got out, there's this guy that says the kingdom of God has come, and when sick people come to him, they get healed. So if you were sick, you went and found Jesus. The gospel said Jesus would try to get some me time, and he would go out in wild and wilderness places, and people would still find him, and Jesus would still heal them. The miracles of Jesus aren't magic tricks to get somebody's attention. They're the actual literal inbreaking of the kingdom of God. This is what it looks like under God's rule and reign. People are whole in mind and in body and spirit. Healings were both an expression of God's love and power, but they were also a statement that he was making about the arrival of the kingdom. Now, then John, why is there still some sickness? We're going to talk about that next, not some, a lot. We're going to talk about that next week, about the progressiveness of the kingdom and what the final culmination of that will be. But every time Jesus healed someone, every time he cast out a demon, he was undoing the effects of the fall. I want to show you two more just real quickly, uh, and then we're going to pick this conversation up next week. Still in Mark 1, because that's a gospel with a lot. Verse 40, a man with leprosy came, and he knelt in front of Jesus begging to be healed. If you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean, he said. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out and touched him. I'm willing, he said, be healed. Instantly, the leprosy disappeared, and the man was healed. Now, that's a great place to end the story, but it's not where it stops. Jesus sent him on his way with a stern warning. Don't tell anyone about this. Yeah, right. That didn't happen. Uh, but then he goes on. He says, instead, go to the priest and let him examine you. Take along the offering required in the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy. This will be a public testimony that you have been cleansed. When you read leprosy in the Bible, it could be actual leprosy, but that was a word that covered a number of uh, a wide variety of skin diseases. These diseases were highly contagious, and people were deathly afraid of catching them. And so lepers were removed from society. If you, if you caught one of these diseases, you had to move outside of town and live in a special colony. If you had to engage with healthy people, you had to yell, unclean, unclean, as you came near them so they knew to get away from you so they wouldn't be infected by your presence. You were excluded as a leper from both the temple worship and the synagogues, which were the two centers of Jewish community. 
So if you get leprosy, you're not just sick. You're not just uncomfortable. You are isolated and removed completely from community. You are cast out. When this man comes to Jesus, I think he's asking for more than the answer to just a physical need. I think his heart is longing for social restoration. I think he's longing to be able to engage in community, human fellowship again, to be returned to those that he loves. And I think Jesus sees both the physical and the social emotional need, and that's why he's moved with compassion. And moved with compassion, this, this is how our God sees us in our brokenness. Moved with compassion, he reaches out and touches him. I read this story this week, and I wondered, when was the last time this leper had experienced human touch? Human con- You don't touch a leper. You might get infected. But one of the very first things Jesus does is gives that man something that had been missing for a long, long time. And then he heals him. And after he heals him, he tells him, go to the priest for a public testimony that you've been cleansed. Why, Why would Jesus do that? What's, what's going on here? If a lame person is lame, a uh, lame person, excuse me, is healed, it becomes quickly apparent that they're healed because they don't seem lame anymore. If a blind person is healed, it's readily apparent that they've been healed because they're not walking into doors anymore. But if a leper claims to be healed, that is going to be met with a high degree of skepticism. And so God instituted a practice for lepers who had been cleansed to be restored to community. They were to go to the priest, who was not only a religious leader, but a de facto doctor. And the the priest would examine them, see that the signs of their illness were gone, tell them to go make an offering, a, a sacrifice of thanksgiving and appreciation to God for the healing. And then they would publicly declare, this leper no longer has leprosy. They have been cleansed. And they're restored to their community. Jesus sees the hurting, the marginalized, and the sick, and he declares that they have a right to be restored back into community. That's shalom. This is part of dealing with the totality, a holistic approach to healing. It's not enough to have your physical need met if your emotional needs aren't met as well, if you can't find a place of belonging. He's saying here in this demonstration, his is a kingdom where everyone can find a place and a purpose. Even the worst of the worst. That's a guy named Levi. Mark chapter 2, verse 13. Jesus went out to the lake shore again. He hung out on the lake a lot. He was a water guy. Um, Taught the crowds that were coming to him. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. Levi got up and followed him. This is a bigger deal than the leper. And we, don't, we don't have the context. Everyone we met so far appears to be a victim, whether it's sickness, whether they're demonized, isolated, no clear fault of their own. Somebody doesn't make a decision, I'm going to get leprosy today. It's just going about the course of life, circumstances had come upon them that caused this separation, this isolation. That's not the case with Levi the tax collector. I think the nicest thing you could say about Levi the tax collector is he is a traitor to his people. He is a Jewish man who is collaborating with Rome. And I don't know if you remember your World War I, World War II, whatever war history, but we shoot collaborators. If you align with the occupying force, once 
we get power again, you are dead meat. He is chosen to align with an oppressive regime in order to victimize and steal from his people. He would set the taxes at whatever level he could get out of you that would cover Rome and then give him what he wanted. And he had the might of Rome, Roman soldiers, to come at you if you refused to pay. To say that he was hated would have been a massive, massive understatement. And Jesus offers two things, forgiveness and belonging. Think about what's going through Peter's mind. Simon the Zealot, the guy that he was like, he just wants to kill everybody, Roman. And he's walking down the street with Jesus and looks at Jesus as Jesus says to Levi, come and follow me. It's not like Jesus didn't know what Levi was doing, like he made a mistake. This is not the the only time. He, He called Matthew and he called Zacchaeus. Jesus restores hope and belonging and purpose by embracing people who are on the absolute outskirts of society, even when it's their own fault. Even when it's their own fault. This this is restoration. You made a mess of your life. You made some stupid decisions thinking that you would get ahead. And you deserve to be hated. And Jesus says, follow me and become like me. That's what it means when he says, come and be my disciple. He restores Levi relationally by bringing him back to his people, and he restores his purpose by making him a disciple. And he does it publicly. He's not meeting with Levi in the back room going, hey, it's going to take a few years, but I'm going to put in a good word. Come follow me. I'll make you a fisherman. Peter thinks he's a good fisherman. Levi, I got you. You're going to be an amazing fisherman. Jesus' rescue mission involves both redemption and restoration. And restoration is always holistic. It's always 360. It touches every part of the human experience, which is important on two two fronts. One, that means whatever you need from Jesus matters to him. He didn't come just to forgive your sins. He came to restore you, to place you in community. Why do you think we talk about small groups? It's not because we need to check a box on our four-square paperwork. It's because communal engagement is part of what we were created for. There is not a single part of your being that Jesus is not deeply, deeply concerned about. Only he can provide redemption. But he brings about restoration through people, which means you have a part to play. I have a part to play. And it shouldn't intimidate us. It should excite us because Jesus gives power and authority. He gives ability and the right to do these things. And we're going to talk about those things in the following weeks. Next week, we're going to talk about the culmination of Jesus' restorative work, what all of this is going toward. But for today, what I want you to take away is that there is not a single part of your existence that Jesus is not deeply concerned about. There's not an area of your life that he doesn't want to restore. And when he looks at the rest of the brokenness in the world and says, what is the answer to that? He says, me and my people. And he says, let's go do it together. Bless you. Can I pray for you? Pray for me. Jesus, you're amazing. I, I, I don't know how you think of this stuff. And I know it would be so much faster and so much easier if you just did it yourself. But God, you want us to learn what it means to be kingdom bringers. And so you've chosen 
to redeem us, to bring us into relationship with the Father, to forgive our sins and bring us to the place where we get to stand before the Father and he sees not our sin but your righteousness. And then you say, let's go do what you were designed to do. Let's do a restorative work in the world. Let's bring about shalom. Let's bring healing to every area of human need. And Lord, where any of those needs are represented in this room, God, where, where I would have said that there's not a single area of your life that God isn't concerned about and somebody may have thought, yeah, but what about? Lord, would you begin to work by your spirit or by the people in your family to bring restoration to that area? Lord, whether it comes immediately or over time, we trust you that your kingdom has come, that your reign and your rule is present and in effect, which means there is no area of limitation we experience that you cannot overcome. And for that, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.